All right, and we're live back with week two, episode two of Talking Stocks. Joe and Todd here, and there's a lot to talk about this week, so we're gonna we're gonna dive right into it. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, so I'm guessing some of you some of you listening last night uh, watched that crazy chaotic debate last night, and it definitely brings up the question of where the market's gonna be come election day and what's gonna happen after that. So politics, politics aside, um, from a, from a market, from a macroeconomic perspective, let's get into this. Todd, offer us some wisdom. I think chaotic is, Joe, hi, how are you this week? I think chaotic is a good way to describe it. I felt like I was watching a sporting event. It was, made me wonder whether or not DraftKings had laid out any uh, odds on that or, or not. Whether I could benefit from that as a, as a business approach later, you know, as we go forward. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, we're getting a lot of questions. Uh, I'm sure, you know, around the kitchen table, everybody's kind of wondering, you know, is there an impact on my, on my stocks? How should I be thinking about it? And I think the, the argument that is made is that <clears throat> if uh, a Biden presidency results in higher taxation, does that mean less money to, that's discretionary that could go into investments accounts affecting demand, uh, causing stocks to fall or not, um, or, or, you know, what will end up happening if, if a Trump ends up uh, getting a second term and how will that play out? And I think while it's very easy for us to extrapolate our own personal beliefs on what may or may not happen politically <clears throat> into some sort of an actionable stock market approach, I, I, I want to caution everybody away from that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the real advice that I've been giving people who have asked me is just continue to do what you normally do. I mean, you know, <clears throat> there's a reason that you have a system in place for identifying great stocks. And there's a reason that, you, you know, you've come up with your thesis and your catalyst for why you want to own these names. And, you know, you're, you shouldn't be selling them based upon, you know, short-term events. And, you know, you could argue that, a, that well, a presidency, that's a four-year cycle. But, I mean, we've had elections that have been contentious in the past. And, you know, it doesn't matter who really gets elected. Would you really... Joe have wanted to sell the market if Obama, when Obama got elected in 08 or if Trump got elected in 2016? The answer is no, Joe, right? You wouldn't right. have wanted to. You, you know, yes, maybe there was some volatility um, and, and that type of thing, but you know, it was the wrong decision. I mean, I really think that when it comes to figuring out how to position yourself, you go stock first, right? You say, okay, is the business growing? What's the total addressable market? How are they going to deliver market share in that total addressable market. And that should be going to your thesis. And as long as your thesis is intact, why would you sell it? I mean, are you going to sell Amazon in 2004 or 2008 or 2012 or 2016 solely because of an election outcome? That would be silly. Right. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of people out there who are speculating on either the election or the market in relation to the election or both at the same time. And the, the truth is nobody, nobody really knows. So there's no point in hedging your bets specifically on, on the election. I think what you said, um, you know, your, your usual kind of advice, you know, stick to your thesis, make, make a plan, trade a plan, all of that still, still applies here. And it's really, really important for people to, to remember that now. I mean, we're, like five weeks out now 
and there's going to be there's going to be a lot of rumors going around and a lot of a lot of speculation and if you're if you're active on social media on twitter like we both are there's going to be a lot of kind of um fear-mongering i'm guessing from both sides about what might happen to the economy um if one one guy gets elected over the other right and what does that do is that elicits an emotional response and one of the things that we always talk about is the most dangerous thing to your financial future is how you respond um, to an event, right? If you allow your emotions to dictate your decision, um, you're going to make bad decisions. You're going to end up, you know, chasing your tail. In the stock market, as you know, Joey, it's a forward-looking mechanism, right? So we don't know to what degree this stuff has already been priced in by quote-unquote smart money, right? They've, right? they've done all their due diligence. They have their strategies in place. They know the way that we're going to run this. And I guarantee you, after post-election, they're going to be unwinding whatever into the willing retailer investors' hands, right? And you know, do you want to be the smart money who's thinking ahead and making decisions proactively, or do you want to be that reaction-oriented uh, investor who who probably is going to be doing more damage to themselves than than helping them? Yeah, I I completely agree. So I guess this is um, this brings up a, a good opportunity to to pivot to a, a topic that I wanted to cover this week, which is um, oil and gas. So if you've, I don't know if this is true around the country, but certainly around here where we live, I know I paid about 10 cents less at the, at the pump last week when I last filled up as opposed to the week before. And I'm sure there is, um, there are underlying economic reasons for that supply and demand. And so I, I think we're all uh, we're all interested to to hear, you know, where the energy market is right now because there's so much there's so much going on elsewhere that it's it seems to be getting overlooked a little bit. Yeah, the argument the argument pretty much is Joe that okay, <clears throat> oil prices have to bounce at some point, and if oil prices bounce, then you know some of these energy stocks are going to be screaming goodbyes. So why shouldn't I go out and buy them now? And you know, I always come back and respond with, okay, maybe that will happen, but we certainly haven't seen in our research yet any real long-lasting evidence of that happening yet. And frankly, I would let, I'd rather let somebody else make that 10% hard money of trying to pick a bottom. Instead, I'd rather have somebody else pick that bottom, fine. Once it starts to move and I can capture 80% of the move, great, that's what I want. I want that 80% of the move. You know, over time, whenever I've tried to be, you know, outthink things and be like, oh, this is going to be the bottom. I'm going to grab this. I'm going to make money on this. It's proven a bad, a bad decision. It's kind yeah. of proven bad because you never know where that bottom is going to be, right? You never know. And, you know, the time that you're waiting for that a bottom to actually occur, let's say you pick up a stock and it's 50 bucks and it goes to 40 bucks. Well, now you're trapped in that stock thinking, okay, well, it'll get back to 50 maybe. Maybe it won't. When will that happen? And how much of this is dead money? You know, now I've got opportunity costs that I have to think about. You know, okay, I'm, that, those dollars are stuck in that energy trade. And um, it can't, they can't be deployed to these other baskets or these other areas of the market that are, are really working. So, and then I think if you go down to individual stocks, I mean, I just looked in the research before we got filmed the show today. And, you know, there are no energy stocks that are high scoring in our research right now. I mean, even if you look at the, those big dividend pay, paying ones, Chevron or Exxon or whatever. Um, you know, I think that you can make an argument, yes, you know, with an 8% or a 9% yield, boy, that looks really attractive. 
But again, you know, you can lose eight or nine percent in the stock value, and uh, and that would offset it. Um, now, granted, if you have staying power, you can ride that out. But who's to say whether or not what stocks will actually survive, or whether or not you'll end up with some of these stocks just falling and becoming single-digit names? Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point for sure. Um, yeah. So I think that. I think that brings up another interesting question, um, which we we publish a report on with Limelight Alpha every week about the about the best dividend stocks. You know, there are people who are who are looking for um, stability in times of uncertainty, and there are plenty of stocks that are still yielding an excellent dividend right now. So. I think it would be it would be interesting to to dive into maybe a couple of those um, and hear kind of your thesis behind them. Well, you know, our approach to dividends is different <clears throat> than some people's approach to dividends. You know, we're not looking and chasing yield. You know, I'm I'm far less interested in trying to find something that's yielding eight percent than I am trying to find a business that can grow and fuel dividend growth over time. So, you know. If it's yielding 3% and I think I can get another 4 to 8% out of the stock, I, I like that. I like that a lot more than chasing a yield and getting 8%, but the, I could end up with a capital loss because the stock continues to decline. So I want to find strong stocks, right, that have like these, these core characteristics that are likely to send them higher, things like earnings growth and revenue growth or, or whatnot, and then, you know, focus on them. And if they happen to pay me a dividend, Great, I'm all on board. Um, one of the stocks that has been screening very well for us in the dividend universe is in Viva Partners. And the symbol there is EVA. Uh, you know, you've got a company that, that you know, is gonna see its earnings grow from 2019 at 94 cents to uh, potentially $1.98 in 2021. Um, you know, they, do, they supply wood pellets to <clears throat> power generation um, uh, in, in Europe and. I think that that's a really good way to to approach it. You know, a, a company where you can actually get some some growth, a, a solid dividend, um, and and it makes sense to, to do it that way. I mean, I think what I'd like to do now is just I'm going to try and share my screen for those of us who are are watching on YouTube and whatnot, <clears throat> so you can kind of see a couple of these stocks. Um, <clears throat> if you look at any of our partners here, you should be able to see it now. You can see that you know the the the, the stock itself has has put in a, a pretty solid rally, um, and we've caught a, a lot of that. What's probably back here in in the May and June time period where it started to show up in the research. Um, you know, gone from thirty five to about forty dollars per share, um, and then you know I, I like to use Market Smith as my charting service because it gives me some really interesting, unique views and insight. But I mean, if you look at this, you can see the earnings are consistently growing. That's great. And it's yielding about 7%. So in this case, you've got a solid dividend yielder at 7%. Uh, that's a high scoring stock that might be worth um, spending a time getting, getting to learn a little bit more about it. So, I mean, we, yeah, we do that dividend report every week and there's always probably, you know, anywhere between 25 and 50 ideas on there that, that are, you know, yielding more than one and a half percent and relatively strong scoring. This is just one example of that. Um, another example would, of a stock that showed up a few times on so that is Wolverine Worldwide. You know, they make, they make boots, outdoor wear, uh, and work attire. Um, obviously, you know, their revenue has been negatively impacted by the fact, you know, by COVID. Um, but 
we're expecting a pretty solid bounce back in earnings per share in 2021. Um, and if you look at the stock, we're starting to get some positive money flow in both the short and long term, uh, which of course is one of the factors, a major factor within our research. Uh, and you get a yield of about one and a half percent in about nine days short. So, I mean, you, you know, you get a little bit of a yield and you get an opportunity for upside. So, you know, again, these are just some of those stocks that, that you might want to be thinking about if you're an income investor, focus less on chasing yield and more on, I'm going to focus on the business and it happens to pay me a yield, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to pocket that money. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, a trap that I myself have fallen into where you, you see a, you see a stock that's got a huge dividend if it's, you know, 10, 10% or larger. And you, you say to yourself, wow, that looks, that looks like a really, a really stable way to whether you're looking for um, income or growth either, or, um, and people, people fall into, fall into that trap. Uh, when they see that large number. And so it's definitely a better way to invest, to yeah, and it's all, look for it's, high growth instead. Yeah, well, that's one of your, one of the raises a really good point to me because, it, you know, we always talk about these anchoring biases or these biases or these things that can get in the way of us making good decisions, right? We'll throw a dividend yield on top, you know? It's like, oh, well, yeah, I should probably sell it because my catalyst is busted and I'm down 10%, but I get this nice 10% yield. So now you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I should stay with it because of the yield, right? Right. You know, lo and behold, you know, I can't tell you how many times over the last 25 years I've seen companies that have good dividend yield that end up cutting their dividend. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I've experienced it myself. One, one stock that I've owned for, for a while off and on uh, is a, a company called New Residential Investment. Their symbol is NRZ. And they they've produced a great dividend for a, for a long time now, but when the pandemic hit, the all REITs in like a day crashed simultaneously and they all went down and uh, NRZ ended up losing about 50% of its value, ended up down closer to 80% at one point I recall. And, so before they cut their dividend, it was showing that they were going to be yielding somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. And then they slashed it and now the dividend is peanuts yeah. and the, the stock's value hasn't, hasn't recovered. So yeah, it was a great run while it lasted, but long-term probably not the greatest idea. Yeah, and you know, you bring up a good question too, because we were talking about REITs. You know, I, I remember uh, one of the articles I up on Seeking Alpha last week, I had a couple, a couple of people who chimed in and said, well, why, do you, why are REITs scoring so poorly in your work? And you know, I mean, I have my own opinions of that. I mean, the research itself is showing me that earnings are, are decelerating, money flow is decelerating, less people are interested in owning them. I mean, all these other things that are, that are headwinds for it that are actually causing our score, them to score pretty weak in our work. The one bright spot in REITs is kind of those companies like Prologix and, and Equinox and stuff who are uh, own those big data centers. Yep. Um, because obviously with cloud computing, there's greater demand for, for, for you know, storage space. Um, so that's one area that's doing pretty well. And then you could look at these other sites. I mean, we are, I think it's very easy for us to draw the, connect the dots and say, well, malls. <laughs> I understand why <laughs> mall rates are not doing well. Um, but you can look at things like residential REITs and other things and you say, well, why are those doing poorly? Or don't, you know, shouldn't those benefit? But I think what we're seeing here is people starting to get increasingly concerned 
that you could see start to see um, temporary job loss because of COVID becomes permanent job loss because of COVID. And that you could see a deterioration in credit quality um, and maybe find companies that traditionally would provide financing and allow companies to refinance rein in um, or tighten their credit standards. And I think we saw that with, um, you know, at a personal level, we saw that with Capital One, who was, we actually went out uh, about a month ago or so and sort of reined in some of the, the credit limits for some of their card holders and stuff. And trust me, that's happening everywhere. That's happening with small businesses, medium-sized businesses. I mean, banks are going to be taking maybe a little bit more, spending a little bit more time thinking about uh, what's the likelihood of me making money on the other side of this, especially if I can't securitize that loan and sell it off to somebody else. So <clears throat> REITs do not score well in our work and energy does not score well in our work. And until they start to rise up our ranking, um, I, don't, I just don't think that that's a place that you wanna be focused on. I think you do, you're better off focused in some of these other areas that are actually screening pretty well for us. I mean, if you look at- Definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you look at large cap and mid cap and small cap, I mean, you see some common themes. You know, you see consumer goods screening pretty well. You see industrial screening pretty well. You see technology screening pretty well. Um, I will say that we've, we've noticed over the course of the last couple of weeks, healthcare as a sector has started to decelerate. Um, and that I, my assumption would be that, that that's a little bit of, of concern over the future of, um, of Obamacare and, and what that's going to mean for, for demand for healthcare service and products. People may be rotating a little bit of that money away. I think that that's probably gonna create some good opportunities, but again, we'll wait for healthcare to start re-exerting. Uh, otherwise, we'll stay focused on, you know, the strongest industries within healthcare through our industry ranking and the strongest individual stocks, because there's still plenty of stocks within healthcare that score strongly. It's just the basket overall is starting to decelerate relative to these other baskets. Right. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we dive into some of those uh, higher scoring industries that you, that you mentioned and uh, perhaps we can show our viewers some of our, a couple of our top picks. Yeah. So what I'll, I'm going to go back for the people who are watching us. Um, I'm going to go back and share my screen again um, so that, so that people can get a feel for, for um, some of the stocks that, that we're looking at. I'll try to talk you through it if you're just listening on the podcast, <clears throat> but there are a few high scoring stocks that have popped up in the research recently that, I think are worthy of looking at. And some of them are relatively small um, and a couple of them for full disclosure, I actually have bought myself. And the first one I wanna talk about is this Optimize RX Corp, which is a relatively small company with only 315 million market cap. What's interesting about this company is it helps um, salespeople in the pharmaceutical industry connect via messaging services. So they don't have to really have to go into the doctor's office to sort of rep their, uh, rep their company's drugs. Uh, and it also allows doctors and providers through messaging um, services to be able to connect better with their patients. And, you know, in, in, in this environment, as we go more and more increasingly digital and we discover, hey, I don't actually necessarily have to be uh, wasting my time driving from location to location, or I want to be able to drive greater uh, volume of my prescription drug by making sure that people are taking it as prescribed you know, these companies are able to engage with Optima, Optimize Rx to be able to do that. And if you just look at their growth and their trajectory, last quarter, their sales went up 25% uh, 
uh, year over year to 8.8 .8 million. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you extrapolate that out, you're still talking about a $25 million run rate and a $315 million market cap, double digit grower. And if you go back and you read their earnings conference call, they're expecting the second half, so Q3 and Q4, to be much stronger. They didn't give ex explicit guidance, but they said much stronger than the 40% plus growth in the first two quarters of the year. So, you know, this is an interesting stock that we recently added to coverage. I own it myself now personally um, as a starter position just to see how it goes out. So, I mean, that would be something in the healthcare uh, that's a little technology oriented and maybe, you know, you want to think about a little bit more. Um, another one that's recently added to the research is Personalis uh, Inc. And I happen to own this one as well. Um, it's a company that is involved in cancer genomics. So again, this whole concept of being able to provide better insight for doctors to be able to determine, you know, what kind of cancer somebody has and how best to treat it. Yeah. Um, and they're using some really cool things with AI and everything else to try and and get a better handle on that. And you know, there's a whole bunch of stocks that have been red hot within that space. Right, full lots of up and comers. Yeah, Fulgin Genetics and Invitae and, and Garden Health and you know, there's a whole bunch of them. So I mean, I think a basket approach when it comes to that, that industry um, makes some sense. Um, but this is one of the ones that I recently added to my basket. And again, you know, solid growth, 20, 23% um, year over year last quarter to 20 million. Uh, with a market cap of about 715 million. So even though we're seeing, you know, some weakness overall in healthcare as it's sliding down our ranking, it's neutral rated right now. New healthcare is neutral rated right now. There are still some bright, uh, bright spots. And then Joe, I don't know if you want me to go into, you know, some of these other baskets, but you know, there, there are, I have other ideas both in restaurants and also in technology. Sure. I think that I think that restaurants would be an interesting one to to dive into because I, I think that a lot of people, my myself included, their instinct is to kind of stay away from stocks that have been affected really severely by COVID from a from a business perspective, not the stock price. And uh, restaurants definitely fall into that brick and mortar retail. Um, you know, consumer discretionary um, and so on, um, as we were talking about before energy. So yeah, I think that, I think, I'd, I think we'd love to see what you've, what you've got. So bring it on. Yeah, well, yeah, there are two there that, that score high in our work that I wanted to point out to people and they actually have slightly different businesses. Um, you've got the more traditional sit-in dining, uh, Brinker International, you know, Chili's, for example, is one of the, one of their, um, one of their you know, main brands. Um, and you know, you say to yourself, like you said, everybody's thinking, well, geez, why would I want to own a sit-in restaurant? But I mean, you gotta recognize too that, you know, the restaurant industry is really fragmented. And there are a lot of small mom and top restaurants and, and smaller chains that are not gonna survive, you know, because of COVID. Right. Um, and absent another PPE, some sort of a, a lifeline throw from government where they can actually make ends meet and pay their landlords and et cetera. Uh, really what you're talking about is the consolidation of demand into, into these larger players. So as these smaller players are forced out of the market, these stronger, larger players with these deeper pockets could wind up benefiting and growing much more rapidly once we do have treatments in place, once we do have a vaccine. And of, of those, you know, more traditional restaurateurs, 
the one that stands out to me as high scoring worth, worth uh, of consideration here would be Brinker International. Um, if you just look, yeah, they've been impacted. Sales are down 32% year over year. Um, that's obviously not good, right? Um, but, you know, if you look at, you know, what um, the guidance is going forward on a forward basis, you take that one year hit from 393 in 2019 for earnings per share, you're still going to make $1.71 in 2020, right? So, you know, you can feel pretty good about the company surviving. And then in 2021, in 2022, you could see significant acceleration in earnings year over year, which I think could attract some attention. So that would be one restaurant to consider. And then the other one that's high, scoring high in our research right now that ought to be on everybody's radar is Domino's Pizza. And Domino's has been a fascinating one to watch. Yeah, do you, get, do you ever get Domino's Pizza, uh, Jeff? Never, I think it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, I'm sure there are others who agree with you, but there are, appear to be a number of people who don't. <laughs> there's, a, there's a convenience aspect to Domino's that I think a lot of, a lot of people my age um, definitely favor in the same way that people favor McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts, even though it might not be the best quality food. But go, go ahead, continue. They, I think one of the reasons that, and you, you really just, when you said ease, you really just touched on it. I mean, if you're looking for an easy way to get some food and you're busy or you've got a big family and you need something that's relatively inexpensive and you want to do delivery or you want to do takeout, Domino's is a great option, right? They never really relied pre-COVID that heavily on dine-in. Right. Um, it's mostly been a delivery company. As a result, they were at the forefront of developing digital um, a digital platform. Their app is so easy to use. And frankly, it is one of the best designed, in my opinion, uh, in the restaurant world as far as driving, cross-selling other products as you're going up into, into checking out. Um, and that, that shows up in, in their results. I mean, you know, in COVID times, sales up 13% year over year last quarter. Earnings actually expanding rather than contracting it from 18, 2019 to 2020 to 2021. And, you know, positive momentum um, as measured by money flow uh, with the stock reaching towards new highs. So I think that there's, there could be some more room to run there as well. Um, you just want to keep, keep an eye on it. Maybe um, if you can get it somewhere closer to 400 on a down day, like 415, 400. And then, you know, again, all these stocks uh, should be starter positions. I believe in going out and, and only doing like, you know, 1%, one half, whatever your small starter position is for your, for your, uh, for your companies and then just letting them prove themselves to you and adding to them over time. Yeah. Um, it might help some of our viewers and listeners if you went into just a little bit more detail about like what you mean by a starter position and then perhaps more importantly, like when, when the, when the turning point is when you want to think about either liquidating that or converting that starting position into something more significant. Yeah, okay, so, so I believe when there's uncertainty in the market, two-thirds of all stocks are going to follow the market direction, right? So it's very easy to think that you're a fantastic investor during a bull market, right? Because, you know, you've got this huge tailwind that's supporting, um, supporting you in, right. in your win rate. Um, so when the markets are going well, it's, it makes sense to, to go with a full position out of the gate, you know? Um, when there's increased levels of uncertainty, however, I think I employ starter positions. So for example, if you just look back at March, 
<clears throat> we have a uh, overbought indicator that measures the percentage of stocks more than 5% above their 200-day moving average every week. And what we found is that when we get north of 50% of the universe trading more than 5% above their 200, that's a warning signal, right? It suggests that you're going to have some kind of a reckoning within the next two to four weeks, some kind of a sell-off. So in January, we crossed above that 50% threshold. And you know, sure enough, in February, we peaked and started to roll over. When that overbought indicator is warning me that we could be overbought, I'm not going to put it in a full position, right? I'll do some starter positions. And for me, if a normal position is 3%, my starter position is 1%. And maybe I can add and bring it up to 3% over time. Right? Yeah. I tend to own a lot more stocks than the average person because right. you know, I, I'm involved in this stuff day in, day out. The person at home maybe only owns, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 stocks, right? But I own more than that. So you have to obviously come up with a system that works well for yourself. That's just what I do at starter position. And then, you know, as we're falling, dropping, 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 I want to see us get oversold on that indicator. When we get oversold, I can go back to doing full positions, like back here in March. I think I started a little bit early, right about in here, starting yep. to put full positions. And then I did full positions and got fully invested again right around here. So throughout this period, I was a buyer yep. and it worked out really well. But through this period, I kind of sat on my hands. And in this period, I was doing starter positions. Now you right. extrapolate that forward to where we are today, Joe, and we have a little bit more market uncertainty again, right? We put in our peak, our overbought indicator is back over 50%. We're retreating, right? And I think that there, I think that there are some green shoots and I've written about them. Um, that would make you think that, yeah, we could hold the 200-day moving average on the S&P and maybe start to build again and move up again. So I am putting that cash back to work, but I'm, hold I'm doing it slowly because there is that uncertainty. I could be wrong, and we're certainly not on that indicator oversold. We're still overbought. It's normalizing. Um, it's, it's starting to make, you know, head in the right direction, getting back to what I like to see a 20 to 40% range but it's still at 49%. It's still a little bot. Yep. So, so I think that full positions when, you know, the trend is your friend. And then when you get a little bit more uncertain, like now, like, you know, in January and February, then, you know, it's better to nibble. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was really well, really well laid out. And I think that's a, <clears throat> that's a good way to, for us to uh, wrap up our discussion for the week. Uh, do you have any any last words of any last words of wisdom for us? Anything that I anything that I may have forgotten on our agenda? No, I think that I think that the thing to remember here, and you know, we talked about it early on. You know, you plan your trades and you trade your plans. You know, and I think that that is just so important. You know, you have to act proactively. Um, you can't react. So have your strategy ahead of time outlined, and then stick to it as you go forward. And I think you'll be much better served. You know, having a system and sticking to it is, is a great way to keep yourself from making poor emotional decisions. Absolutely. Completely agree. Very, very wise words and a great, great way to wrap it up for the week. Uh, as always, if you have any, anything you'd like us to talk about in the next week when we record this, reach out to us. Uh, Todd's on Twitter at EB Capital and I run the at Alpha Limelight handle. 
Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll get this up and hope to see you all next week.